You're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. All right, today's show, Jonathan Gold, Pulitzer Prize-winning restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times. Jonathan's been at it for a long time. Uh, he was the restaurant critic for LA Weekly. He came to Gourmet with Ruth Reichel kind of around 1999 or so, went back to the Weekly, won his Pulitzer in 2007, and then he joined the staff of the LA Times in 2012. He's got a lot to say, an incredibly knowledgeable guy, a curious guy, loves his food, loves to write. So this is him and me talking, and we talk for a while because... Uh, got a lot to say. So let's listen in. I've got a lot of questions for you. I'm glad. (laughs) I got lots. We'll start off with your film, City of Gold. You had a film made about you. That doesn't happen with restaurant critics very often. (laughs) I, I I think I'm pretty sure it's the first. I've never seen one, so maybe so. All right. It's coming out by IFC. Um, it's a documentary, a very sort of illuminating, revealing, uh, but fun movie. Um, and I guess the first question is, what made you decide to say yes? I'm asked all the time to do the same sort of stuff we all are, right? The reality show yes. things. And the, you're always like, oh, God, I, uh, I don't know. You know, I, I'm sure it's perfectly fun to, you know, sit in for two days with the cast of Cupcake Wars. <laughs> but it never seemed like something I, I needed to do. And uh, Laura Gabbert, the director, uh, won a dinner with me or bid for a dinner with me at a charity auction for school. Oh, wow. And we had dinner and she proposed this. And I said no. Wait, wait, so she she bid on the dinner with this ulterior motive as of trying to get you to do a film. I believe she did. (laughs) Clever. So she so she was giving you the hard sell and and what so what convinced you like, oh yeah, this could work. Well I said no. We had coffee a few times afterwards and my son ended up at the school that her kids went to. When you see somebody in the pickup line every day. Yeah. Then suddenly it becomes something that you have to deal with. And, you know, I liked her a lot. I thought that her movie um, Sunset Story was just beautiful. And with the internet, the idea of anonymity was a thing of the past anyway. Well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting, and, and it's a topic in the film itself is, you know, back in the day, not not very long back in the day, restaurant cr- critics were anonymous, period. Like, that was a given. Um, you sort of addressed this fact. You sort of came out, so to speak. Um, so all of a sudden, but you're now walking into a, a, a restaurant with a film crew, and, and you do, and what, what did that feel like? Well, she always wanted to film the idea of reviewing a restaurant, of for the first visit, but I I banned that. I mean, there's no way that you can review a restaurant while you have a film crew with you. Yeah. So the restaurants that we went to were ones that I had reviewed and I was more or less a regular at, and it was okay to have a crew there. It wasn't going to affect anything. Well, let's, I mean, let's talk about anonymity, mm-hmm. and, and you've spoken about this before, and you speak about it in the movie. Um, you know, in this day and age, there's the 
the argument that it's kind of impossible to be anonymous. Your photo's out there. People, if they want to find out who you are, if restaurant owners want to know who they are, they will know. Um, but, you know, for the more sort of high-profile restaurants, how much of when you walk in the door, they know you're there, how much does that color your experience, do you think? I think there are maybe 15 restaurants in the country that can make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was the critic at Gourmet here, um, I I was at La Bernadam. I was in a in a very bad seat, having the only mediocre meal I've ever had there. <laughs> you know, Eric Repair walks in, sees me at this table by the bathroom, does like almost a spit take. You hear like yelling in French <laughs> outside in the lobby, and suddenly the next two courses were the best things I've ever had yeah. in my life. He can make a difference. At uh, Danielle is famously a person that, or a restaurant that produces for its regulars more yeah. than it does for you know people who just come in for their anniversary dinner. That's a problem in maybe the extreme top tier of restaurants. Yeah, I mean, but they know who the critics are anyway. Exactly. I mean, I always feel with with the anonymity thing. It's like. All right. For the most part, the average restaurant or even the good restaurants, you know, they're not going to be able to change the decor, the lighting, the wait staff, or the menu. Um, I, I do think perhaps you will get better service if they recognize you than you might get otherwise. But they're not going to – I don't think the food typically is not going to change. You know, the dishes are the dishes. And it's not necessarily better service. It's more nervous service. <laughs> I mean you see the like the hand shaking when they're pouring the wine. And you're just like, let me get that for you. <laughs> Uh, or people will come to your table every 45 seconds to ask you how things are doing. All right. So, yeah. So, okay. Let's, uh, we'll agree that it, it, it can only affect it to an, to an extent. But what about, um, and, and I had this experience here somewhat at Bon Appetit, although we do not critique restaurants at Bon App. Um, but when you get to know a chef, does that then affect your ability to write about him or her objectively. There's a scene in the movie where you're at Twamek and Ludo Lefebvre is behind the counter and he's like, oh, shit, Jonathan Gold's here. Um, do you know Ludo, for instance? Do you try to meet the chefs but not get into a relationship with them? Or how do you handle that? Well, there has to be a firewall. Mm-hmm. There is one chef in Los Angeles with whom I have a bit of an exception. And my uh, my wife wrote a book with her. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, she's been a family friend for a while. And her restaurants are harder to review. But I'm not super kind to them. I'm as hard on them as I am on anybody else's places. And you have to be able to lose friends. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you think um, you can be hard and fair at the same time that you hope they understand? You're not necessarily being mean-spirited, but you're, you can be critical without being mean? I think I can. Oftentimes there's a really, you know, tricky line anyway, right? There's, there'll be a restaurant whose ambition you greatly admire, who's doing things in the right direction, yet this, 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 and this, and this are not being done well and they need to think, and they need to think about this and the front of the house doesn't work. And you do a review that won't necessarily stop people from going there, but it will send a signal that these parts are not working out. There was recently this last month, um, I mean, almost for last month and a half, uh, sort of seismic reverberations in the food world when Pete Pete Wells of the New York Times gave a 
a not so kind review of per se. And what what did you think of that review? And and did you you know do you read those reviews? Yeah, I, I read him. Um, I it's tough. That must have been a really tough one to do. And some of it, like the the part of sending his friend in to get bad service, is gimmicky a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you should be able to infer everything that's going on from your own experience. Mm-hmm. But Thomas Keller's restaurants are a very particular kind of place. They're doing a certain thing. And if you're that's not your aesthetic, you don't like it. I mean, what he does is, you know, sort of extreme technical perfection. And if it's at the point where you're losing that. You you have to deal with the sort of arcane ritual of the meal, the tr- trillion courses, the um, you know million upsells, and you're not getting that perfection that is presumably what you came in for. What he does, then that needs to be called out. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because there, as a critic, obviously it's it's personal but on the same token you ha- but you have to understand that yeah there are certain restaurants that maybe aren't your type of restaurants but does that necessarily mean they're not a good restaurant and how do you balance that with who the reader is compared to who you are I try to be fair I know that not every restaurant is my kind of restaurant and I know that every restaurant that is my kind of restaurant may not necessarily be what all the readers are looking for well, I, mean, I think that's what's fascinating about your writing. I generally read your review each week. And I often got asked the question when I, I was at Time Out in New York years ago. And one of the questions I was often asked was, well, well what makes you qualified to write about restaurants? Um, and you can answer that a lot of ways. But I think the, the bigger question is or answer is, are you enjoyable to read? Do people want to read you? It's not when that necessarily how knowledgeable you are about food, but can you write about it in a way that's, that's entertaining? And... And, I, and I'd be curious your thoughts on writing style versus food authority. I think a lot of the times people assume a food authority they don't necessarily have. I mean, it's one of the things with journalism, right? I mean, you 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 get you get an assignment, you you fly off to Italy, you spend two weeks with water buffaloes, and suddenly <laughs> you are the expert on mozzarella, right? Even if you've never had anything that didn't come from a deli before then, <laughs> that you can always change what you're doing. But I can't pretend that I know this stuff. The process of coming to the knowledge, of going to a place and then figuring out what it means and coming to some sort of coherent conclusion about it, saying something about the culture, but it's the nature of the profession to come across as the expert. And I always think the most interesting part is the journey to becoming an expert. I was curious about when you write about the sort of the new places as opposed to the, you know, the small strip mall discovery. And and I was thinking to myself, like, what is the most L.A. of L.A. restaurants in the last, like, 20 years or so? And I was like, well, it's got to be Spago, right? Uh, at least as, as an East Coast guy's impression. So mm-hmm. I was like, has Jonathan reviewed Spago? So I looked it up. Um, and, of course, you have in December 22nd, 2012. You, that's when you joined, you joined the Times in 2012, correct? Right. Um, and if I could just read this, and I think this gives a good sort of impression of your write-in for those who don't read Jonathan Gold. Um, all right, here we go. 
The first responsibility of any great restaurant is to keep you in the bubble, the soft serve cocoon of illusion where you forget the world exists for anything but your pleasure. And the newly redesigned Spago, from the moment you toss your keys to the valet to the moment you stagger back out again, gives good bubble. Um, that's a hell of a lead. And then you go on. The thick prime rib steak sings with the flavors of blood, age, and char. There's important art on the walls, including a photograph of a shattered cell phone the size of Pau Gasol and a painting you could swear you saw it at an Ed Roche retrospective. And while the music may tend toward the sort of 80s rock your meathead younger brother may have stashed on his iPod, at least you are not picking at your hearts of palm salad to the beat of Hotel Lobby Electronica. A, I love that. B, it's fun. It's it. It reads like you had fun writing that, and that when you came up with the bubble line, you kind of smiled to yourself, and like you're like, oh, that's a good line. Is that fair to say that when you write something good, you're like, you know, you wrote something nice? Um, about two thirds of the time, yeah. Yeah, and that's got to be yeah. enjoyable. You're like, oh, that yeah, I got it. I I, I got it. Yeah, I, 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 did, I, did, I did like the bubble thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I also I think what's interesting about you, so how, how old are you now, if I may ask? Uh, mid-50s. Mid-50s, okay. Um, and L.A. is a very young city, you could argue, or at least people want to be young forever in L.A. But it's interesting, I also find you a, a writer who remains constantly relevant. And in that second paragraph, uh, you reference Pau Gasol, formerly of the Los Angeles Lakers, uh, Ed Roche, iconic L.A. artist, um, 80s rock on an iPod. Um, you know, it's like you you stay in the game, uh, and that's impressive to weave those sort of cultural moments into a, a food review that's not just about food. Well, food is part of the culture, and there's nothing duller than people who just write about what's on the plate as if it's, like, suspended in a vacuum. Yeah. Um, I don't in some sense, in a technical sense, I'm really interested whether, say, a, a steak was cooked, you know, 30 seconds too long, and I know when a, I know when a sauce is, you know, overreduced. But you don't have to write about this that stuff. No, they don't necessarily want to know about the Maillard reaction. So in, in the movie a lot, you're driving around. All right, first of all, what's with the pickup truck? You're in L.A., a city where everyone is judged by their car, and you've got this green ram pickup like right. what's the, what's the backstory with that the backstory is in LA you are very much who you what you drive right yeah. it's a part of it and like you pull up to the valet and they kind of give you that <sighs> once over like they judge you immediately yeah and i've got to say that and this is the most superficial thing in the world on a sculptural level i think that truck is Gorgeous. Wait, it, was, it was the most gorgeous vehicle on the market the year that I bought it. Which was when? What year? 97. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's, I, I, I remember like a couple months after I brought it, like pulling into the parking lot of, you know, Cafe Fanny, which mm -hmm. was the, the, they used to be like the breakfast place run by the yeah. people at Chez Panisse. And I was talking to Alice Waters in the parking lot, and she was absolutely appalled by my truck. <laughs> what, what is your, your wife, Lori Ochoa, who's an editor at the Los Angeles Times, what, what does Lori think about the truck? Um, I, I think she's grown to love the truck. <laughs> uh, but, 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 but then I, I, I told Alice, like, you would not believe how many organic turnips I could fit in the bed of that thing. <laughs> 
<laughs> what um, when you're driving around, do you listen to music? Yeah, of course. Yeah, like uh, does it have a CD player, or do you have to listen to the radio? Yeah, it has a CD yeah. player. Uh, it, it tends to be. Um, you know, screechy jazz. I've, yeah. been, I've been in an Albert Eiler binge for a while, and I, I listen to a lot of uh, opera and uh, chamber music. There's there's something very funny about like you know pulling up to a traffic light and like bumping Puccini. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have like a bit a flatbed of speakers in the back of just yeah. I have a question. All right, so when I'm driving around L.A. or the suburbs, and you and you go by these strip malls, um, and as as the uninformed just sort of visitor or food person, it, it's very hard to tell one strip mall restaurant from another. Uh, on the sort of the higher end of restaurants, you can kind of tell who has their game together by right. the decor, the lighting, the tchotchkes, and who knows what's cool and who doesn't. How do you get turned on to where the potential finds are? Is it, is it just driving around? Is it talking to people? Is it on the internet? What's your sort of mode of research these days? I mean, all of the above. I drive around a lot. Obviously, the 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 hot new restaurants are on whatever circuit yeah. those are on. Um, you know, some, sometimes I'll spot a sign that I haven't seen and I'll go in. Um, I haven't done it as much lately, though it's always useful as to sort of over a period of a couple of weeks hit every restaurant on a particular stretch of oh, wow. road. So, for example, a lot of my... San Gabriel Valley fixation started when I did something like that for the LA Times in 1990. Uh, I ate at every restaurant on a street called Las Tunas as as it went through San Gabriel. And it was everything from sort of unimproved uh, 40s hamburger stands to just the sort of wildest profusion of uh, restaurants from you know recent Asian immigrants, you know, uh, you know Indonesian place that specialized in salads. There was a uh, Vietnamese place that had the best spring rolls I'd ever had in my life. A place that I continue to go to. Um, th- there were places doing handmade dumplings. There were there was a Taiwanese uh, coffee place called The Other Taste. And this was 1990 you wrote this piece. Right. Whose yeah. whose specialty was – And you still remember all this. Yeah. A, d- a drink of like tea and coffee mixed. Yeah. Uh, there was the first of the good Malaysian restaurants in town. There, w- And if you were driving by, you wouldn't know. Yeah. It, they're just ugly mini malls on an ugly strip of street in sort of a forgettable part of a suburb. Is it is it frustrating that – uh, I imagine it's challenging for you to return to your favorite restaurants, your favorite little spots, when you constantly have to be discovering the new ones. Um, I wish I could go to more of them again, mm-hmm. but I still manage to get to you know Golden Deli, you know, once a month. I yeah. still manage to get to you know Bloodsoes and Compton for you know their smoked brisket once a month. What's your what's your routine in terms of um, checking out new places? Who do you bring with you? How often are you bringing friends, and how often are you going solo? I almost always bring people along. Though, as as one gets older, one has fewer of the sort of friends who can spend five hours to going to noodle shops yeah. on a Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but when I'm doing the sort of 
the cultural restaurants or the folk restaurants, I will – and yes, I am using circumlocution to avoid saying the word ethnic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, you know, often I'll go by myself and I'll go, I'll go to half a dozen places in a day and have a dish or two in one. And yeah. if something blows me away, then I know that's something I have to keep going to. Um, I usually will bring, you know, a friend. My, my family comes with me a lot. Um it's a, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the usual rotation. Yeah, well, that's a good question. Family, so you, you have yeah. a, a son, you have a wife, obviously. How do you balance work uh, and family, and do you have any sort of set guidelines that you adhere to in terms of seeing them? Um, weirdly enough, one of the reasons that I do things the way I do is so that I can spend sort of a maximal amount of time with my family. I mean, I love I love my kids, and my wife has always had, you know, big jobs, right? I mean, she was the she was the number two at Gourmet for years. She was the editor in chief of the LA Weekly. She's in charge of all the arts entertainment coverage at the LA Times now, and you know, I'm just a happy, lucky <laughs> restaurant writer. So. <laughs> Do you try to do more investigating and eating during the day as opposed to nighttime, or is it a balance? Uh, probably more investigating during the day. All right. One, one thing that's um, addressed in the film, and this is – I have – I once assigned you a piece. I was at GQ years ago, and I wanted you to write a very short 200-word thing on – it was like a travel package. It was someplace in the hills of Tuscany, or maybe it was Umbria, and, and I remember emailing Lori and talking to her mm -hmm. and – She's like, listen, Jonathan will do it, but you have to know, like, it's not going to be in on time, and you're going to get it when you get it, and then just roll with it. And we got it at the the very much 11th mm -hmm. hour. Have you always sort of procrastinated? Has it gotten worse? Has it gotten better over the years? What What, what is your current status? Um, how do I put this? <laughs> I always get the pieces in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've never not, but it's that – yeah, I, have, I definitely have a perfectionist streak. And I know, you know, I've, I've been on your side of the desk mm -hmm. enough times to know that it's incredibly aggravating. And there are – not that I'm allowed to write for Lucky Peach anymore. Yeah. For some reason, the Times thinks it's uh, competition. But uh, sometimes, like, Peter Meehan will give me too much slack. yeah. yeah. Because it's like, oh, you can sail through a deadline? I didn't know that. I <laughs> <laughs> mean, mean, God doesn't actually strike you dead at the other end. I have a good story about okay. that uh, th that little thing I did for you at GQ. Oh, what, you actually remember? Oh, yeah. It was on – it was it was one of my favorite places anywhere. It's it's gone now, but it was, it was about half hour north of Arezzo or m more to the point for the GQ readers, I guess, close to the uh, Prada outlet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the – you know, everybody's like perfect ideal of the, you know, Tuscan country restaurant, right? It's like, the, you know, a, an antipasto table that was, you know, half a soccer field long. And the pasta was like hand-rolled peachy with, you know, things like wild boar or pigeon. And then, you know, this guy, giant guy comes out in a blood-stained apron who's been grilling your three-inch thick Fiorentia steaks over a fireplace upstairs. I remember that part of the piece. And it, and the Chianti's growing out and back, you know, <laughs> past the tractors. And it – but I, I went there with my daughter who was very young at the time. I mean maybe six or seven. Mm -hmm. um, at, 
And I had this habit then of like pouring, you know, three drops of wine into a glass and then topping it up with, you know, sp sparkling water so that she would think that she was drinking wine but yeah. wouldn't actually be. And there was a table of Americans yeah. who were just staring at me as Damn if I, Americans. As if I were the, you know, devil incarnate. Like a slow drip of opium into her veins, yeah. And, and, and then, of course, I noticed that they had like a, uh, a folded copy of that GQ. No way. <laughs> Carefully. <laughs> I'm glad someone read it. Uh, I, I, I almost felt like going over there and <laughs> let him know what's what. How do you stay hungry? That's that's what I'm always curious about with a job like yours. It's not always easy to. Mm -hmm. No, no. Sometimes you absolutely don't want to go out to dinner that night. But there's always. I assume it happens with theater critics too, right? It's like every time you go into a restaurant. Or every time you go into a theater, you're waiting for, you know, the curtain to lift and for the best experience of your life to unfold on stage, even if you're, you know, bored and tired. Yeah. And it's the same way with restaurants, I think. I mean, the one where it gets hard, it's a place that you know that you're already lukewarm on. Mm -hmm. And because you're lukewarm, you have to go more times. Yeah. Well, those have to be the toughest reviews to write, I imagine, are the, are the mediocre ones. The, the good reviews you want to enthuse about the bad ones you're happy to be critical about not happy but you you have something to say but it's got those those sort of middle ones those can't be easy can they no they're not and it, and you know i my column comes out you know every week in the times and they're just places that you have to write about that are they may not be bad but they're just not exciting so i've got to say when i worked for when i worked for Gourmet, when there was a restaurant that wasn't particularly exciting, but that was the only thing I had to write about that month, yeah. the idea of having to think about a mediocre menu for an entire month was just torture. Yeah. And you would think that I would have just, you know, written the first week and gotten it over with, but again, I'm a perfectionist. I kept going back and hoping there was something <laughs> else going on. It's got to be better than this, right? No. Um, what uh, do you like? What's your take on best of lists? Is that is that just part of the job? Do you enjoy doing them? Um, in a certain way, I think I'm probably one of the Pied Pipers of them. Mm -hmm. um, I started editing the best of LA issue for the LA Weekly in 1985 or six wow. when I was a wee tot. I guess 89 or 90 when the LA Times Magazine started, um, they wanted um, Ruth Reichel, to, who was the LA Times critic at the time, to do something. And I came up with the idea of like a, a top 40 list, top 40 dishes list for her. She did that. At some point, I was the restaurant critic at LA Magazines. I started their, you know, you know, best 10 new dishes. Yeah, when uh, when I was at Gourmet, I started the 50 best restaurants in the country that. list. Yep. At, the, at the LA Weekly, I did the 99 essential restaurants. And I must say, the essential thing is my fiddle. <laughs> it is, I, I would like to state here for the record, that was my fiddle. That means you don't have to worry about absolute quality. It has to be the restaurants everybody's talking about. And now everybody in the freaking world has essential lists. Yeah, you have you have to do one now. And it's like, you, and it's and if you and if, obviously if you ever spend any time on the internet, everything is a list. Yeah, everything is ten this or ten that. 
but, uh, but but the essential fiddle, yeah, especially. And and you know, since Lock, Lockhart Steele claims that he saw it in some paper in Prague, uh-huh. let, let me say. He did not. <laughs> <laughs> and Lockhart being from Eater, uh, one of the founders of Eater. And, and of course, I do the the 101 best restaurants for the LA Times, which is one of the most successful things we do. Yeah, I think that's uh, – I would highly recommend that to any of the listeners um, online. They do. I think they do a great job, um, both obviously the, the recommendations, the write-ups, the, the technical aspects of it. I think it's hugely useful to anyone you know, either living in LA or visiting LA. I mean, you must meet people who – essentially plan their entire eating calendar around what you've written. Like they, they want to cross off all 101 restaurants from that list. You would not believe how many people will come up to me and with their list and this, I've gotten to 68. <laughs> or they'll be really mad because one of the places is closed. Oh. They want to know what they can go to instead. <laughs> I get a substitute. <laughs> um, you're in New York right now. Where did you eat last night? Uh, La Sirena. Okay, the new Mario Batali restaurant. Yeah, which was really good. And wh- why that one? Why, why did you decide I'm going to go check that out? Well, he hasn't really had a, a new Italian restaurant here. Been a while. I thought that. I'm like, when was the last I think place? Del Posto may have been the last one. Del Posto was, what, 10 years ago or something? At least. Yeah. So I, in New York City, like, he obviously has in, in L.A. is right. uh, Moza and, and uh, Pizzeria Moza and then uh, Gispaca next door. Um yeah, I was trying to remember the last time. I have not been yet. I always like to kind of. Do you have a policy on how long you like to give a restaurant before you visit? Because that restaurant opened a couple weeks ago. Um, well, I'm in New York, so it yeah, so you matter. might as well. But just in general, but, but um, I tend not to go in the first few weeks. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes. This is weird to say. It, it feels like being Casper the Friendly Ghost, right? <laughs> you go in there, say hi, guys, and everybody goes, Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> and and some restaurants that have you know a lot of moving parts. Like there's a place that I reviewed a couple of weeks ago called Odium. It had been open maybe three months. But it's the project of uh, Timothy Hollingsworth, who is the chef de cuisine at French Laundry for mm-hmm. a million yep. years, um, that it was actually built from the ground up, which is almost unheard of these days. It was you know, attached to the Broad Museum, which is this big new art museum in L.A. And he's actually trying to define American cuisine in certain terms. There's a lot of balls in the air. Yeah. And in a certain sense, the review I do next year will probably say more than the one I did now. But I, but going there in the first couple of weeks, as I mistakenly did, was a mistake. Do you, and do you acknowledge that in the write-up? That like, hey, this is early, like – well, I mean, if it's a, if I if I get a weird meal to begin with, mm-hmm. it's it's almost a gimme. Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, I've been there. This wasn't working. Let's come back and see what you're really doing. But that's also one of those restaurants, um, and I do think if you're the critic for the L.A. Times or the New York uh, Times, et cetera, that I mean, that's a restaurant that is getting a lot of buzz, but it's also projecting a lot of buzz on its own. Like it's part of the conversation, and you can't you can't not go. You do have to chime in. Probably earlier than later with some a restaurant like that, yes? Yeah, and there have been restaurants that I genuinely don't like that have become huge parts of the conversation. I just end up having to go 
I mean, I'll, I'll review it a year and a half late. I don't do it that often, mm. but it's not as if I don't do it. And there are other kind of restaurants, especially live fire restaurants, which are restaurants that are everything is cooking in a wood oven. No, yeah. you, get, you get in a lot of that, yeah, especially yeah. in L.A. I mean, when, when I when I was here, Peasant was oh yeah, fantastic. And that was years ago that that, that Frank opened that on in Olita. Yeah, yeah, I I remember. I it had been sort of uh, you know an uh, actress model whatever restaurant in it, in its first six months and yeah. I completely avoided it and uh, so, somebody at the magazine said well you should probably go here I think chefs go here yeah and I was like yeah right and I went in there and there was nothing remotely resemble, resembling a chef and there was people who were at last year's hot restaurant. Yeah, yeah. And then at the next table, you know, in comes, uh, you know, Ducasse with Bocuse and uh, <laughs> no Jean, Jean-Louis Paladin. And it's like, okay, chefs might yeah. come here. <laughs> <laughs> chefs with all capital letters. Um, I, I don't think I've ever seen like a table like that. That's hilarious. But, but it's interesting. Like, uh, and that was late 90s, right? Yeah. Um, and, but it's, you know, nowadays with that company Grillworks, which is putting in like those big mm-hmm. sort of like rotisserie sort of grills and the hand cranked and the lower and, and wood fired. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, that's, they're sort of everywhere all over the country now. But anyway, when you're doing live fire and you have that stuff, it, it takes a long time to figure out how each different, you know, thing is going to work, how yeah. each, you know, oven is going to work, how the grills and the fires and the flues and the whatever to sort of find the sweet spot. And then when you're dealing with a certain kind of wood oven, it takes probably a year to cure. Yeah. So sometimes the idea of having to address those right away is – not c- completely fair. Yeah. I mean, obviously, someone like Francis Smallman has spent a lifetime figuring that out. You got to give guys a few months at least. Um, what about uh, in terms of what's your latest take on, you know, Yelp, blogs, like the fact that there's eight gazillion food reviewers out there these days compared to when you were at Gourmet or, you know, there was you and Ruth Reichel, basically, you know? Yeah, there are so many people who call themselves food writers. Do now. you do you check in? Are, are you are you a reader of them? Is that does it do they influence how you do your job? I don't think they influence how I do my job. I mean, it's you know I don't make a habit of reading a lot of Yelp reviews. I do check in on food blogs every so often, but there's so many fewer of them than there used to be. And blogs have almost disappeared. It's all Instagram feeds now. Yeah. And, but I would be foolish if I didn't use them as data points. Yeah. I'm curious in terms of digital or analog, do you have like a, a big bulletin board with pins stuck in it and like the places you got to go, like you're hunting some like serial killer or do you, is it all, do you have like a list on your laptop? I have a list on my laptop. Yeah, it's not that romantic. Um, it'd be, it'd be nice if I did that. I mean, I've actually, I have never met anybody who's done that. Yeah. I mean, e- even my pal, you know, Robert Seatsima, who's the one who you would figure would do that. Very old school. That. Yeah. It's, do you, do you remember his um, – he had the first food zine ever. It was called Down the Hatch. Yeah, of course. And um, I, I remember actually trying to uh, subs- subscribe to it. And it didn't have an address even. It had like 
a phone number that you'd call if you wanted to subscribe. And and he picked up the phone and I, and I talked to him for a little bit. He said, no, I I have to put the stamps on myself and I have to copy everyone personally. And you're in Los Angeles and you couldn't possibly have a use for this. <laughs> Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for uh, for stopping by to chat with us. You have your new film, City of Gold, uh, coming up by IFC. Uh, March 11th. March 11th. It's in theaters, but you can also probably get it on the internet, I imagine. Uh, it is in theaters only. We um, IFC signed a deal with Hulu, so I guess starting in the fall you'll be able to get it on Hulu. But um, Go see it on the big screen, City of Gold. It looks like Los Angeles. <laughs> but but wait, before we let you go, we have our Thanks. light we have our lightning round. Okay. All right. So either or questions, you gotta answer them. Uh we'll, we'll start off. Twitter or Instagram? Twitter. Twitter. Twitter's my thing. I love Twitter. Yeah. You I, I follow you. What's your handle again? Uh, at the J Gold. Yeah. Uh, I recommend it out there, everybody. Follow him. Uh AJ Liebling or MFK Fisher? Liebling. Liebling. Between Meals, one of my favorite books about his Time in Paris. Oh, it's a, it's an astonishing book. Yeah, um, you, the the sort of New Yorker triumvirate of food writers, like you know him, uh, Joseph Mitchell, and Trillin. Sure. Yeah, astonishing. I guess Joseph Wexberg also. They can write uh, ramen or pho. And do you say pho or do you say pho? I say pho. Yeah. You, you have to say pho. And as long as we're doing this, it's not bon me, it's bun me. <laughs> but wait, there's that terrible, I, I, see, I don't want to say it's a terrible restaurant, although it's a ridiculous name. On Sunset, right by the Chateau Marmont, there's that restaurant called, I think it's Beverly Hills 9021 Pho. Have you ever right. by that? Yes. It, it's it's really bad. <laughs> it's, and it's bad. All right, good to know that. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, there's always a, the legendary... Uh, Restaurant called uh, Pho King. <laughs> <laughs> All right, wait, wait, you have to pick one ramen or pho? Yeah. <laughs> uh, pho. Okay. Why? I like ramen, uh, but ramen lends itself to a kind of otaku mm. or, or, you know, it's a specialty thing. People are nerds about ramen the way they are about Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the Current iteration that is really, really popular in Los Angeles is the sort of balls out um, tonkatsu ramen, yeah. it, which might as well be liquid pork fat, except I think it's even fattier. Yeah, you're done for the day after you eat that. Yeah. Um, and, and pho is just so light and delicious. Essentially, it's a salad in the form of a soup. Oh, I like that one. I might steal that. Um, breakfast taco or taco at midnight? Taco at midnight. Um, I'm related food truck or food hall? Food truck. Why? Tell me what you love about food trucks because New York is not really a food truck city like LA is. Well, there was a point, you know, five, six, seven years ago that I thought that food trucks were the radiant future because anybody can buy one. I mean, the the price of entry is pretty low. You rent a truck, you spend a few thousand dollars on like a vinyl wraparound <laughs> and you, 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 have a, you have a small kitchen and you don't have to pay rent really. Yeah. You don't have to worry about being in the right neighborhood. You just do what you do. It turned out that 95% of food trucks, like 95% of everything else is really mediocre. Yeah. But there's still that idea of 
adventure of entry level capitalism that you're just going to find something wonderful. Jiro dreams of sushi or Tampopo? Tampopo. Tampopo is just the best noodle movie ever made, maybe the best food movie ever made. I, I remember seeing that in college, and I remember walking out just so hungry. I was like, I have to go eat noodles right now. I never, nothing like, nothing like it since. Yeah, and it's not even the noodle, just the noodle part, though the noodle part is great too. It, that scene of them like making that ketchup omelet. Oh, yeah. What's the best scene ever at the end? Yeah, yeah. just in the omelet. That's amazing. That crazy, very weirdly erotic scene where they're passing the egg yolk between their mouths. Right. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, it's a very, if you haven't seen it, please go see it, guys. Mm -hmm. um, reporter's Notebook or iPhone? Reporter's Notebook. Yeah. Um, Dodgers or Lakers? Wait, that's unfair. <laughs> you got to pick one. It's a lightning <laughs> round. Lakers. I am just. I am so wounded when the Lakers lose, and this the last couple seasons has been unbearable agony. You know what? Life balances has a way of balancing itself out. You guys, you guys had a pretty good run there for like the last I don't know forty years. Um, you just have to yeah suck when, it up. When I when I lived here, I tried. I really tried to be a Knicks fan, and it was it was during the Sprewell year, so it's like it was really. Yeah, they went to the finals that year, yeah. Um, but nah, it's like. No, I, I bleed purple and gold. <laughs> uh, Apple Pan or In and Out? Apple Pan. Yeah. Explain Apple Pan to people who have not been there. Apple Pan is a um, 1940s lunchroom surrounded by, you know, giant buildings and shopping malls. They resolutely refuse to sell out. Um, you, you wait in line. There's a very sort of rigorous... Uh, system for that everybody has internalized on getting the seat at the counter. And it's the perfect California lunchroom burger. The lunchroom burger being almost more a textural thing than it mm -hmm. is a thing of pure meat. So, you, you know, you get the the bun that's crisped on the grill, you have the crisp lettuce, you have the tomato that is Unripe, but this is one <laughs> of the places where it's unripeness and l lack of succulence is uh, there's, you know, the onions are a little bit crisp. Actually, now I'm thinking, is there a tomato on it? There might I not wonder, be a I tomato. Well, they have, they have the relish. You could get one. They have that yeah, relish, relish, which I find a little too sweet, personally. But You bite through it, and there's all these different layers of crunch that come together. It's sort of one perfect bite. Carnitas or barbacoa? You that's got, a that's a really hard one. Well, you, well, you can pick. You, you get one. I get one. You're having lunch today. Are you ordering carnitas or barbacoa? I'm in New York City. I'm not ordering <laughs> either. either <laughs> of um, but there is something about like the really great uh, barbacoa from Central Mexico, from like you know uh, Texcoco, mm -hmm. where it is. A whole lamb, and they wrap it in uh, mage leaves, and they bury it, and it comes out, and it's it's but it's it's crisp, and the lamb sort of like collapses in on itself, and it's not as much as it is juicy, but it almost 
is juice. So they mm. serve it with a thing of the drippings, you know, oh, con- yeah, consomme yeah. that you can moisten it with if you need a little and f- fresh, freshly, you know, hand padded tortillas and mm. uh, and a cold michelada. And, mm. oh. <laughs> Man, I just made myself <laughs> hungry. Fortunately, it's almost lunchtime. Um, uh, I, I have no idea what this next question even means, kind of, sort of. Um, the 101 or the 405? Oh, the 101. Why? This is a very obvious LA question. Uh, the, the 101, also known as the Hollywood Freeway, uh, begins in East LA. It sort of disappears in sort of like a welter of different freeways. But there are so many great places to eat off the 101. It's just it's it's a wonderful freeway. The, 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 <laughs> you, the, just, you just said it's a wonderful freeway. <laughs> I like freeway driving. It's I mean I know people hate it, and in the film City of Gold, there is a lot of time sitting in my truck on freeways, and. Some people sit it. Some people see the film, and it just reminds them of how horrible LA freeways are. But you just know, right? You're in Santa Monica at four in the afternoon. You've got to get to Pasadena. You know it's going to take you an hour and a half. You have great tunes in your car. <laughs> you know, there's nice view from the freeway of the of the mountains and the and the Hollywood Hills and the and the city around you, and you watch the light change and you listen to Ornette Coleman and an hour and a half later you are where you are. It's this it's Los Angeles Zen. It's the sort of ecstasy of movement. LATimes.com or Los Angeles Times delivery. I love the sound of the paper thumping in my driveway. I I love picking it up. I love the smell of newsprint. I love, you know, that first great cup of coffee that you make in the morning while reading the physical newspaper and the and the progression through it, you know. Uh, I, I, I won't front. I start with the sports page. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, all right, last question. Okay. Uh, butter or olive oil? Okay. This one I refuse to choose <laughs> because I have I have recently become addicted to uh, the Bird de Barat from the um, from the French um, cheesemonger um, Rudolf Lemonnier. He's kind of he's kind of the rock star cheese ager yeah, yeah. in France, and he has this line of butter from Normandy that has as much flavor in one tiny smidge as you would find in like an entire pound of Land Lakes, And it's just this astonishing substance. I, I, I actually talked to him once. I said, you know, it's, it's actually almost low calorie because you don't, you just need a little of it. And he looked at me as if I was absolutely out of my <laughs> mind. It's like, no, I spread it three centimeters <laughs> thick. But, <laughs> um, man, that's good. But I, I, I cook with olive oil almost exclusively. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Gold. Jonathan, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Belle Cushing and Carrie Polis, with editing by Mitra Kaboli and additional help from Christina Che and Lily Sherman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us anything about this or any episode, please email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com.